0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning, and welcome to Church of the Redeemer. We are uh, excited that you're here with us during this Easter season, and what an exciting time uh, to be together as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and all that it means for us in this season. Uh, Let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, just for today and a chance again to gather as your resurrected people that you are uh, not done with our community, that you're not done with sin and death, but through the power of your Son, you are resurrecting uh, us, our families, and our cities uh, all to the power uh, of your glory. God, we pray as we dive into... Uh, Your word to us today that you would uh, allow the spirit to move in our hearts to illumine areas where you're seeking us to grow and to show us your care and mercy for us as you guide us as your sheep. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, what an exciting uh, time of year. Not only is it Easter, but as many of you know, this is another season of celebration because this is graduation season. I don't know how many graduation parties you have on your schedule already, but we just celebrated Guilford College's graduation yesterday. Um, I teach at Greensboro College, and our graduation is next Saturday, and of course, the high school students are coming uh, a little bit later on. Uh, And graduation is one of those important uh, celebratory moments. It's an important event in the life of anyone when you graduate from high school, college, or, or other Degrees. Uh, And I've sat through a few of my own graduations, and they're kind of sometimes moving experiences because they cause you to reflect on what's gone by, and they also cause you to look towards the future and sometimes the unknown. My May is always filled with at least one uh, graduation. And graduation is a significant event because graduation changes things. I mean, think about it high schoolers and college students. As you graduate, one thing that changes is that you no longer have to go back to classes, right? That's a, that's a good thing. Trust me, I see a lot of students, and there are some students I'm really happy to see some of them graduate. <laughs> to not come back. And we had a great time, but you know, time to move on. Um, but it'd be really, really weird come August, come September, to walk back into the classroom, sit down, take out your laptop or your notebook, and say, all right, let's do this. Or even more weird, what if you uh, are graduating high school and you went back to your kindergarten classroom. And you sat down, you're the biggest kid in the room, kind of like a scene from Elf. You know, you got a question, uh, and they're like, what are you doing here? You've graduated, you've moved on, you've got you to go. Graduation changes things. There's no going back, unless you go to grad school, and then more classes, more books, more reading. Uh, but more importantly, graduation can also open up new possibilities, new opportunities that didn't used to be there, For example, uh, when you're looking for a job, you can now apply to some of those because you've graduated. Jobs that were previously not available have now become open to you. New opportunities develop. And so graduation is that event that kicks off a new stage of life for you. And it's important that we remember this. In today's passage, I think Paul wants us to see something similar at work. As Paul reflects on the resurrection of Jesus... He says everything changes because of this event. Because of the significance of the resurrection event, new possibilities are open. So if you have your Bibles, could you turn with me to Romans chapter 6? We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. Now Paul is writing to some early Jesus followers who are living in the capital of the Roman Empire. And he's helping them to unpack the Jesus story for their lives and for their community. He wants to see the intersections between what Jesus did and how they're supposed to live in Rome. And now we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're going to say, okay, what does the Jesus story mean for us here in Greensboro? He's helping them unpack this. He begins in chapter 6 by responding to a potential question about grace and sin. Take a look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The first thing we see in verse 1 is a question, and we think that this probably isn't Paul's question. He's actually probably responding to something that the Romans are thinking about. And it's kind of a crazy question. Should we go on sinning so that God's grace can increase? Now, grace is one of those big Christian words that often gets thrown around. I'm talking about God's grace, God's grace at work in my life. And grace is certainly getting something that we don't deserve, but really the word there is God's gift to you. The word grace is the word gift. And so the question is, how do we respond to God's grace, to God's gift to us in Jesus? In the previous chapter, chapter 5, Paul had been showing how God's grace triumphs over sin, that God's grace is more powerful than sin. And so the Romans might have thought that if God's grace always wins, it's always going to win out, maybe sin at the least is unimportant, it doesn't matter, because God's bigger than that, or at best, maybe we're actually helping God by sinning. It seems absurd, a little bit, but think about this scenario with me. Um, if any of you nanny, babysit, or are the parents of little kids, this scenario is going to make sense. So most of your life right now is probably filled with picking up messes. right? You put away the toys at the end of the day, you do it again and again and again, you start a new day, the toys are all back out, it seems like nothing changed, You're like a cyclical version of Groundhog's Day. And so each time you put the toys away again and again and again, and it's exhausting, right? Each day is filled with the little kiddo taking things out, and you put them back at the end of the day. Well, at least most days, right? Six out of seven is great. Um, And so you put the toys away. But could you imagine this scenario from a little kid's view? Kids make a mess. The kid makes a mess. The parents come clean it up. And the kiddo, not knowing any better, concludes, hmm, Mom and dad seem to really like cleaning up messes, so I should probably make some more messes. I mean, from one point, solid logic, right? I do this, it gets taken care of. We would say, no, that's completely wrong, and that's why I have very, a lot of frustration in my life, as, uh, if you're a parent. Well, that's what Paul is facing in Rome. Some have been arguing that if God's grace is so good, and that if grace covers sin, why not sin all the more, so that the good grace of God Could increase. So, faulty logic. Paul responds in verse 2. He says, No way. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Just like a kid in cleaning up messes, it doesn't increase the messes. It's supposed to do something different. To operate like this is to profoundly misunderstand God's grace and what God's grace should do in us. Paul then begins to tell a story, and it's that story that I want to focus on this morning. And that begins in verse 3. Starting in verse 3, Paul begins to tell the story of the resurrected Jesus. But he connects it to another really significant event for you, me, and the community in Rome. Paul says in order to understand sin and grace, you need to understand baptism. And we may think, baptism? What does baptism have to do with anything? It's like this thing I do and get wet, come out of the water, and nothing really changes Maybe we didn't think Paul would turn to baptism, but watch what he does. And as we enter into this section, I want you to remember this summary. What's true for Jesus is true for you. What's true for Jesus, the resurrected Lord, is true for you. That's going to be really helpful as we go through our passage today. And so take a look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so that we, as, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So here's Paul's point. Jesus died, you died. Jesus was raised, you are raised and will be raised. What's true for Jesus is true for you. This is the pattern that Paul wants you to pick up. Paul says that in our baptism, we die like Jesus died. We die to the power of sin in our lives. And baptism reenacts the story of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Just on Easter Vigil, we celebrated six baptisms. And what we were doing there is we were telling the same story over and over and over again. Because the process of baptism is meant to reflect the life of Jesus. We're placed in the water, in a, in a form of burial, right? Right? Then we're raised out of the water in reflection of the resurrection. It's a profound image. And just as Jesus was raised to a new resurrected life, so we too are raised to live a new life. Remember, Jesus died, you died. Jesus was raised, you are raised and will be raised. What's true for Jesus is true for you. Paul says our baptism is the beginning of this resurrected life. But let me ask you a question. I have a slide on the screen. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? So if we had this, we had to fill in the blank. Jesus was raised from the dead so that I can. What would we put in that blank space? Some might say Jesus was raised so I can go to heaven when I die. Not what Paul says. Jesus was raised so I don't have to go to hell. Not what Paul says. Jesus was raised so I could be encouraged, I could be successful, I could find inner peace, I could get the job I've always wanted, get the family I always wanted. The list could go on and on, and Paul doesn't actually list any of those things here. Now, there are other important passages, but here, the focus this morning is on what Paul puts in that blank space. We see that Paul doesn't list any of the things we might first jump to. But don't miss the important aspect that Paul mentions. What Paul actually mentions at the end of the verse 4 is really, really important, and I like how the NRSV translates it. I have it on the screen. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that, there's a purpose, so that, Jesus was raised from the dead, so that we too might walk in newness of life. This is one of the most transformative verses you will encounter. Don't miss it. English grammar nerds, you know that the main verb here is to walk, and it's in the present tense. What is Paul saying? Let's p- spell it out plainly Jesus was raised from the dead so that you could begin to live a new life now. Not 10 days from now, not in two years when you graduate from high school. Not in 10 years when the kids are out of the house. Not 20 years when retirement comes. But now. The resurrection begins now. Our present life is meant to be infused by the power of Jesus' resurrection. And we often think of the resurrection as a future event. And it certainly is. Paul's going to mention that in verse 5. Just as Christ was raised, we will be raised, right? Verse 5. And he's going to talk about that future element in just a few verses. But one thing Paul wouldn't want us to miss about the resurrection is that he believed it was not only a future event, but a reality that affects us here and now, that something begins now. And so Paul views the Christian community as a community of the resurrection, as people who have been brought back to life. As Judson reminded us last week from our passage in Acts, God both invites us to practice and to participate in the resurrection. But why? What's the purpose? What's the so that for us? When we live out the resurrection in our lives and in our communities and in our families, we give the world a tangible picture, a foretaste of what's coming for each and every person. This is what the future will look like in microcosm, in nutshell the resurrection at work in the life of the church is what we call a signpost. It's a sign. It points to a new reality of a way things are supposed to be different. Now, many of us are familiar with signposts or what we might just call signs, right? Here's a picture on the slide, one you're probably familiar with, right? Now, as many of you know, I'm very horrible with directions. I wouldn't survive in a world without GPS. I think it's the thorn in the flesh that God gave me to keep me humble, I get lost very easily, very, very easily. Um, but this sign is probably a familiar one, right? We've all been here, right? You're headed east on I-40. Maybe you're taking a friend to the airport. Maybe you're heading to a concert or sporting event in Durham or Raleigh. And you've got to follow the signs to get to the destination, right? Now, we all realize this, that the signs are not the destination. No one parks under that sign and says, I've made it to Durham. You're like, no, man, keep... Keep going, you're, you'll get there. Like, get off the road, you're going to cause an accident. Um, the sign says. The signs just tell us where to go. They tell us where this road is headed, right? Well, when we practice the resurrection in our lives, in our church, this is what we do as a community. We Don't miss this. We are a sign, or we are supposed to be a sign, God's sign of where things are headed we point in the direction of where the whole world is going because of what we believe about God, the gospel, and the life to come. The church is the future now in some small way, shape, or form. Just as the I-40 E sign says, Durham ahead, so the church, in its obedience, in its resurrected life, says resurrection is ahead. Life is ahead. The kingdom is ahead. Follow So what does it mean to live this newness of life now? Work this out with me. Resurrection makes people stop and take notice. When we've been talked about poorly and don't respond in vengeance, that's a resurrection moment. When we practice radical generosity, where other people's concerns are just as important as ours, that's a sign of new life. That is not the way things typically run that's a sign of somebody who's come back from the dead when they start thinking of others as more important than themselves. But it's not always easy to do this, right? You can check the box and say, yes, this is what we should do. Because for this to happen, for life to take, take, hate, take uh, hold and take shape, something's got to die for life to flourish. And the first place Paul goes in this passage is dying to sin, And Paul's going to spend a lot of time here with these two categories of sin and death. In fact, if you counted up the terms here in this passage, Paul mentions sin eight times in 11 verses. That's pretty frequent. But it's beaten by the terms death and dying, which occur 13 times in 11 verses. So obviously Paul's making a a connection, right? Sin and death are the two most frequent terms in this section. And so, what's he trying to do? I think for Paul, and we might understand this a bit, sin and death go hand in hand. We often don't think about sin like this. Sin is one of those topics we probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about, right? It's not, not a happy topic. And if you've been around the church, or even if this is your first time, sin isn't something that we uh, say, can't wait to talk about it, let's do it. You know, it's a topic that we avoid, right? And that's because sometimes we've really misunderstood what sin is is. I find that when we think about sin, we often think about the bad things that we're not supposed to do, right? So, for example, this is an example, maybe true or not true. I lied this week. Again, I don't know if that's true or not true. Probably true. Um, I lied this week, and God says I shouldn't lie, so I have now sinned, period. Shouldn't have done it. I did it. I'm sorry. It's done, Now, that isn't a bad definition, but it's not the only way that the Bible talks about the topic of sin. We tend to think of sin in the abstract as an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. But don't miss what Paul does with sin here. Paul stands within the great witness of the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and those authors always connect sin with death. It's not arbitrary, it's not random. It's connected to a more powerful force, the power of death. And sin is certainly the violation of God's way of life, his standards. That is true. But we've got to go where scripture goes. More importantly, sin is a road. It's also a signpost. And its destination is one that leads to death. So here's that example again. Lying is bad. And it's not just because it's not as good as telling the truth but because lying leads to a culture of death. Think about it. Lying kills relationships. It's a sin, but it also brings death to our relationships. And so when God defines something as sin, it isn't just God trying to keep us from doing things that we'd probably much rather be doing if we actually could do it. For God, the creator and sustainer of life, sin is this death-dealing force And God's immense love for us says, I want you to choose life. Don't choose death. God is keeping us away from the things that will only deal death in our lives and in our relationships. Sin is the opposite of true life. It contributes to death, which is the opposite goal of resurrection. And so here's the really bad news. Sin causes us to choose death over life time and time again, we consistently choose and do things that are kind of deeply bad for us. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we don't know it. And it's bad for us and for our communities. But again, here's the subtle lie of sin. Sometimes we think it's actually bringing us life. Our selfishness, our self-preservation, the human heart is actually turned in on itself and then deceiving ourselves that what we really think will give us life is actually the very things that are killing us. We've exchanged one for the other. But here's the good news of the resurrection. Here's the hopeful news. Paul says in Christ, through our baptism, we have died to sin. Sin has been killed. Paul says in verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here's the point. We come back to that principle. Jesus died, you died. What's true for Jesus is true for you. Sin and death didn't conquer Jesus, and through the resurrection, it can't conquer you either. It won't have the last word. Paul says, because of the resurrection, thanks be to God, sin and death no longer have to be our story. The resurrection of Jesus has broken in so that we might live a new life now, that the new creation might start here. Remember where Paul started back in verse 2? He said, How can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? That word it really caused me a lot of consternation. as I, That's a weird word. Consternation as I was uh, writing this sermon. What's Paul doing here? He he views sin almost as a space, as a road, as a destination where Christians no longer live. It's an it. It's a, it's a place. Now, many of you know here at Redeemer, we have a lot of realtors who work in our church. And if you've driven on Greensboro a lot, you'll notice there are a lot of for sale signs in the yards. People are moving, people are selling their homes, and houses are selling quick. Now, go with me on this. I haven't checked this out with a realtor, but I think it's true. I'm pretty sure that when people sell their houses, the former owners move out. Right? I, mean, I think, go with me. Right? It's true. I think it's true. All right, yep. Not a realtor, but I think I've heard, I've seen a movie. Um, I mean, imagine how weird it would be for you to put the sign, for sale sign up in the house, in the front yard, sell the house. Moving weekend comes, you pack up all of your belongings, put them in the U-Haul, you move into the new space, you unpack all this stuff. Monday comes, it's dinner time, and you go back to the old house. You knock on the door, you say, hey, would you mind if uh, our family and I have our family dinner here? We've always done it this way. You would get like the strangest look from the new owners of like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like, this isn't how this works. Um, No, you definitely can't do that, as quaint as that memory is. Please leave would be the type of look you'd get, depending on how nice the person you sold your house to, right? But how weird would that be? That after you've sold a house, you'd keep showing up and expecting to live a life there, just like the old way. Doesn't make any sense. This is how Paul views sin in the life of a Christian. You have moved locations. You've moved. You don't live in the house of sin and death anymore. Your zip code has changed from sin and death to life and resurrection. How can you go on living there anymore, Paul says. What a radical image. We've moved. We've changed locations. The resurrection of Christ liberates us from the house of bondage the house of sin and death and in Christ we we're placed into life in the resurrection this is the joyous message of easter you have a new identity and you have a new story and it's one dominated by life and the resurrection one of the stories that we've encountered about the christian life can be really really unhelpful some of us have been have bought into a story whereby we believe in jesus in the resurrection and then we sit in our hands and await the second coming. We just coast, sit back, just twiddling our fingers and getting, for honest, really bored in the process. That's a boring story. And thanks be to God, that's not the story that the gospel writers tell. Rather, the resurrection is both a promise to us of the life to come and a calling to roll up our sleeves and join in the work of new creation with God who both empowers our new life and our new activities. We don't do this alone. You can't do it alone or by your own power. You just can't resurrect yourself. Later on in Romans 8, Paul's going to say this. He's going to connect resurrection power to the giving of the Spirit. So on the slide it says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, present tense again, He who raised Christ from the dead, God, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives lives in you. The spirit comes and it changes with the resurrection everything. Or as Paul says in verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's time to get on living. What the resurrection changes is simply everything. Nothing stays the same. It brings new possibilities and new avenues for us to live the life God intended and anticipation of the resurrection to come. This is what we celebrate in the resurrection now. And so this Easter season gives us a profound opportunity to take a look at our lives and ask a simple but hard question. What do I want to see God resurrect? If God resurrected Jesus, if he's resurrecting me, What in my life is dead? And where can the power of the Spirit come and bring that back to life? Where we ask God for heirs of our life to come alive as a sign of God's redemption and rescue, as a signpost pointing to our community and to others. God's resurrecting things. He's resurrecting me. He's resurrecting you. But can I encourage you to think big? Like, to not just say to God, I'd like to gossip less or lie less. That's true, that's do that. Not that those things aren't important, but when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, a dead person coming back to physical life, I think it should radically raise our requests. Nothing is too dead or too far gone for God to raise back to life. If the resurrection tells us anything, death is not the final word. Nothing is too dead or too far gone for God to raise back to life. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. All throughout our passage, Paul has reminded us, Jesus died, you died. Jesus was raised, you are raised and will be raised. What's true for Jesus is true for you. Jesus is alive and you can be too. Your relationships can be alive, your marriages can be alive, our neighborhoods and cities can be brought back to life. Nothing is too far gone. We believe in a God who raised Jesus from the dead, And as Paul shows, to practice the resurrection is to say no to sin and death and yes to life. So how do we do that in our lives, our families, and in our communities? So if the resurrected life makes people pause, what are those things that make people take a time out and go, what's going on there? Maybe it's the commitment to work and rest. Rather than working ourselves to death, the resurrection says, what I produce is not who I am that my identity is with Christ, and I don't have to pursue these things to find value and worth. I think relationships are affected by the resurrection. Relationships can be one of the most profound places to practice resurrection. Here, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. If the resurrection is not true in our relationships with one another, it won't be convincing anywhere else. There's no better story to tell than a resurrected Relationship. Christians in their relationships with others ought to look profoundly different. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation are all empowered by the resurrection. They don't happen without it. Death brings death, death doesn't produce life. Because of Jesus' resurrection, I don't have to hold on to bitterness, anger, or indifference. Friends, this can change our friendships and our marriages and our relationships with our kids. No marriage is too far gone for the resurrecting power of Jesus to bring back to life. God can resurrect that too. The grave, de- the grave didn't hold Jesus, and it won't take your marriage either. Death is, death is not as powerful as life. How might this change our viewpoint on relationships For those of us who are single, looking to start a relationship, what's the motivation? The resurrection of Jesus empowers us to say, that relationship won't bring me life. That's not what it's meant to do. Rather, relationships are a place where the gospel takes hold and resurrection springs out of. But I don't need to look to that for life, because my life comes from the resurrection. Only Jesus can do that. How does the resurrection change our city? One of the powerful realities of resurrection... Is that it allows us to be open and honest about the areas that are not fully a picture of God's kingdom. When we see injustice, we don't have to run and hide, and we certainly don't have to deny it. We know that through Jesus, the resurrection is conquering death, and death and injustice will not have the final word because it didn't have the final word about Jesus either. Take a look around our world is broken. Death runs rampant through our streets, in our homes, in our cities, in our countries, and in our world. And we want to resurrect people and neighborhoods with the goodness of the gospel, with the message that Jesus is raised from the dead. Each week, we come to the table. We celebrate the risen Jesus and the meal that he gave us, which is a sign of his kingdom coming. We take the bread and wine, and in these elements, we meet the grace of God that empowers us to be a resurrection people and to raise to new life. We are alive now in the power of the Spirit. What should our response be? More sin? No. More life, as Paul says. The resurrection can begin here and now in our obedience, which is a sign of the new life and of the life to come. What's true for Jesus is true for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.